This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're back from our holiday break with a focus on film culture as we start 2016. We'll be discussing the most notable Brazilian film of the past year and finishing our discussion on Bolivia's view of Operation Condor. But first, Natalie Ottinger is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. More political conflict in Venezuela this week as the country swore in new members of its National Assembly. After a landslide election victory by opposition groups, the country's Supreme Court has sought to throw out the election results of three new members. The court accused those new legislators of election fraud. Despite the court's initial ruling, the new leader of the National Assembly, Henry Ramos, ordered that the three members be sworn into office. Diosdado Cabello, the former leader of the Assembly until this week, reacted to the move by his successor. This is a grave act, a tremendously grave act. This act violates the Constitution. This act violates how the shared powers of government should work together, and this is a flagrant act of disrespect. Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, also moved to limit the power of the new National Assembly. On the last day of his special decree powers, he signed a law that limits the Assembly's ability to oversee the country's central bank. Currently, Venezuela's opposition groups hold a supermajority in the new assembly. But if they lose the three seats the Supreme Court is disputing, the opposition will also lose some of the special powers that come with its supermajority. Some opposition members are already asking the new National Assembly to begin proceedings to recall President Maduro from office. Guatemala's attorney general ordered the arrest this week of 14 former generals and high-ranking military officers accused of ordering mass killings during the country's civil war. Attorney General Thelma Aldana says those accused ordered the abduction and execution of hundreds of indigenous Mayan civilians during the war. More than 180,000 people have been forced from their homes in four South American countries due to heavy rains and flooding. The flooding hit Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, and Uruguay. Meteorologists linked the rains to the El Nino weather system that is expected to make 2016 a very wet year. Thieves in Sao Paulo, Brazil, seem to be both daring and perhaps desperate. Lately, the city has seen an outbreak of thieves stealing newspaper kiosks, the small buildings where vendors sell not just newspapers and magazines, but also snacks and sometimes clothing. Surveillance footage shows the thieves striking after midnight with a truck and winch to haul off the small buildings. Brazilian police believe the thieves aren't stealing the newsstands for their merchandise, but rather for the buildings themselves to cope with the need for housing in low-income neighborhoods. The newsstands are valued at about $2,500 each. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie. This past month, HBO, cable television's most popular bundle of channels in the U.S., has offered the Bolivian film Olvidados, The Forgotten. And you can still catch the film there for at least the next 10 days or so. The film provides one of the first views of Operation Condor 
from a Bolivian perspective. Operation Condor was an agreement among various South American countries in the late 20th century to hunt down, imprison, and execute dissidents, people who were seen as threats to the right-wing dictatorships that dominated the region. The plan was aided by U.S. intelligence services. Carla Ortiz is both the producer and one of the stars of Olvidados. We talked to her via Skype from Los Angeles about her film, and you may be able to hear the city's busy traffic in some parts of the interview. This is the second part of our discussion, and we asked her about showing the United States as one of the villains in her production. You know, New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles um, has has made the film successful, and it's been uh, the Americans. And we also had the support of uh, organizations like SOA Watch and uh, uh, many organizations that are really Amnesty International that um, helped us and in, in validate in in a way, you know, our film. But uh, I, I should mention that 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 is the School of the Americas Watch, SOA Watch that you mentioned. For those who don't track Operation Condor and some of the things that the U.S did um those organizations are still out there and still working for peace exactly and they they for people that don't know the school of the americas is the school that has been training all these militars in the united states and from all over the world and you show the school of the americas in the film yes i show the school of the americas and that's exactly the point you know how they basically um get and and get all these all they recruit all these people and like uh, this person from the saw watch said and they turn them into killing machines um you know the the foreign policy of the united states it's something that i believe that a lot of americans uh, don't agree with and I think that the people that came understood this even more. Uh, a very um, interesting uh, uh, man who I respect very much and, uh, uh, and who's your colleague, um, uh, Blaise Bompard, he said something very interesting in one interview that he did to me. He's like, you do understand that we're talking now about Operation Condor and one day, maybe in 15 years, we're going to be talking about Operation Middle East, which is exactly the same thing. And... Um, I, I froze for a second and then we're going to be asking, oh, my God, so how did it happen? It started in Iraq and then, you know, went into Iran and then, you know, Afghanistan and I, it started all of this happening. I just really think that Americans are now, even though it seems like they don't care, I think uh, American people really want to know what's happening in their country. It's kind of like the same question that I was talking about before in Bolivia. They kind of know but they don't really know, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, we know we hear in the news, but yes, it's for the best of, of the United States. It's for where we're controlling terrorism It's in order to keep us safe. It's the same thing that they told us um, in the seventies. And we let our, our dictators protect our country and our land um, and let them kill whoever else. I think it's the exact same process that the state is living now, where people kind of know, they kind of ask, but they rather not really know. But it, it is an awakening um, moment right now, and I think this is why the film has been successful. Let's talk about your success as a producer. You mentioned the machismo that's part of that process. You mentioned also that this is your first time producing. Do you, do you want to keep producing? Um, tell us a little bit about the producing process. 
You know, I think it's like when you study uh, medicine and after seven years you get your, you know, you get your graduation, then you say, I'm, there's no way I cannot not be a doctor <laughs> after all this that I went through. I, I have to practice. And yes, I will keep on producing. Um, I'm very excited about uh, taking on projects that create awareness and that can inspire change in every different way. Um, maybe I'll try to do at some point more commercial films at the same time. And um, even uh, films that, um, historical films, I'm, I'm working on an epic film right now. I think that um, if I would have known what it, meant and what it had to take to be a producer I don't think I would have ever done it ever it's a very difficult um, task because you play God uh, you have to take decisions that you don't even know it was my first time and I had thank God an incredible uh, team of people very experienced with everything and they supported me and they walked the way with me but regardless of these it was um, it was very hard uh, sometimes for them to listen to a young actress uh, who you know is being uh, celebrated as a sexy woman alive and put together in their head that this girl that at one point did soap operas in Mexico now is producing a film of this state and talking about these matters and it was very conflictive and yes i would even say that the entertainment business is very misogynistic and um yes there is it's the fault of us women because we don't take these risks so we can um you know uh, blame them but uh we shouldn't because we need to take more charge and we need um to um, try harder and I am sure men do the same thing to younger men male producers it just with a female I think it's a little bit harder just because they go oh my god and now there she comes who thinks she can do this because it's hard and even as a woman it's even worse <laughs> the Bolivian government provided some funding for this particular film but you have stories about how you raised money and that's uh, a big role of the producer too raise the money that your international team can put to work on the screen. I think you see some of that money. It's, it's a sumptuous production. It's, it's not something that, that looks like you scrimped. <laughs> I was uh, very fortunate to meet Frank Justra um, almost 10 years ago. He's a very important philanthropist, uh, I mean, in famous tycoon of uh, um, mining and uh, so many other things, but he's dedicated these past 10 years of his life to philanthropy for real. Um, he was the person that put all the cash money for my film. He was very clear. I remember um, we had a promise because he will always, we will always only do philanthropic work together. And I just came back from Bolivia after the landslides there where he gave me $100,000 and I turned those $100,000 into $2 million. And I came uh, with this award and uh, giving him the results of where the money went. And he asked me what I was working on. And I told him, uh, I pitched him the film for uh, basically uh, 50 seconds, less than a minute. And he said, I'm going to do it. And he said, this is important. And he said, I just have a question for you. You want this film to be seen 
or you want this film to make money? And I said, I just want this film to be seen. And he said, okay, we're in business and that's what we're going to do. And that was the beginning of everything to produce without the fear of having to think and compromise things uh, because of money. And then my government jumped also with an important um, uh, support and uh, all the governors and the mayors and the private uh, oh my goodness if I could tell you things like the telephonic company in Bolivia gave us 300 lines for six months all free things like these were happening you know I went to talk to the commander-in-chief in the military and he basically opened the whole military he gave us tanks and all these soldiers that you see and all the artillery and arms that we have in the film for real. Um, the mayor of La Paz basically gave me the key of the city with security and open to use anything, would not charge me at all. Um, things like this start happening. And even like uh, the Bolivian airline, they just gave me all these tickets to be flying around and moving with as you know, we had a super huge production. We were a film, we were like almost 200 people working on set all the time. This was literally like a Hollywood production. Like you say, it's like a huge production, but I didn't do it alone, you know. Everybody helped. Everybody helped. And um, it began, I think, with the fact that I had to not be um, fearful of returning the money because there's when you start compromising so many things. Can you share with us how much it cost? Um, you know, uh, cash money uh, was $2 million. Um, and uh, basically all the rest, after all the donations, when you know when you have to present the film, it's over 4 or $5 million. Uh, in Bolivia, if you convert um, this uh, amount of money, it would be something like 15 to $25 million. Um, Bolivia, is, it's a very... Um, cheap country <laughs> it's amazing i'm not publicizing my country but you can basically have a full lunch with a soup salad which is you know your entry and your main entry with um, a chicken and rice and everything a dessert and your coffee for three dollars and fifty cents that's just how Bolivia is. So, um, so if I if if I can tell you, I would have never dreamed of having all this team uh, together. And the actors were okay. You know, I'm gonna do it for obviously much less money than what they usually charge. You know, this because they understood this is a film that needs to be done. Let's just get it done. And then you know things would happen like. Like what I'm telling you, a hotel would say, oh, my God, all these stars coming, come, you can stay here. I'll give you 80% discount or 50% discount. It just kept on happening. And um, things even like all the way to the mixing, I, I, I'm sure you realize the sound is almost impeccable. It's, it, I am so proud of the music and sound and I have this incredible composer and they basically kept on and keep on kept on giving me gifts, you know, okay, we're gonna mix for another week, you know, we're gonna do this for another, don't worry, we're gonna do this other because they all got so passionate about the film. So the film is a very sad film that is being done with so much love, so much love. And even my distributors, you know, we've been working every time I'm going to a place over the weekend, you know, at night, midnight, we keep on like pushing these because 
it's more than just a film. It's it's a film that is telling a little bit of a truth. You know, there was this guy, uh, and I'm sorry that my answer here is it been so lo so long, um, that he said. Um, Operation Condor, uh, um, Olvidados is to Operation Condor and South American genocide what um, Schindler's List has been for um, for the Holocaust. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe somebody's saying this. But um, in a way, maybe it's just that little tip of the, of the you know, of the big, um, of the big picture that maybe that's just what happened with this film. And I really hope it inspires other people to take the risk and do smarter films, you know, films that awaken you, not just films that put you to, you know, forget about everything and be numbed. And uh, we go to the movies so much for these matters, you know, like forget about the world, forget about our problems and get numbed for an hour and 50 minutes. Sometimes I think it's in important for us artists and for viewers to watch a film, to be uh, aware and wake up. I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about how you prepare as an actress to play someone who is a torture victim. <laughs> you know, uh, when I was doing the interviews uh, for for the work we were doing when we were writing the script, we sat with Elia Petridis for six months and we are writing and writing and listening to the interviews. And I could hear the voice of Lucia. I, I, I knew how she breathed, how she, you know, every time I was talking to each of the ladies that survived the torture. Um, when I put this in the hands of a Carlos Volado, uh, he completely changed my Lucia. <laughs> he changed this character. My director, yes, and he just showed me a, a different Lucia, and it was very hard because all the all the in depth that I had because I never prepare a, a character the way it happened with Lucia because I wrote her, you know. Yes, it's based in the character of Mauricio Davis, the original script where we base the stuff, but I, I, you know, I put words in her in her mouth. Uh, but the work that Carlos did with me was incredible because he made me completely detached and aboard completely Lucia. And he presented me this other Lucia that was a more um, just completely um, oblivious uh, character that just ended up getting into this other world. And um, I think it worked so much easier and better because my remembrance of, of the character I prepared um, was, was so much uh, heavier. And um, I have to give uh, credit to Carlos for what he's done with, uh, with me in the film. And to tell you the truth, I was petrified when Damian Alcazar and uh, Carlotto Cota just arrived from winning from Taboo, this film that, you know, from Portugal two years ago in... Uh, he won so many film festivals and Manuela Martelli won Cannes Best Actress and all these guys that I, they were all, they arrived. And I just remember when I was walking to the press conference, I went to knock on their doors and they were all rehearsing in their rooms. And I ran to Carlos and I said, I can do this. We need to cast this character. They're all so amazing. I won't be able to do it. <laughs> Our interview with Carla Ortiz, the producer and one of the stars of Olvidados, was recorded via Skype from Los Angeles. Coming up, 
More discussion of Latin American films, this time Brazil's top offering of the past year. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. And now on a program about Latin American films a week removed from the official U.S. Academy Award nominations, we discuss a film that came ever so close but fell just short of a Best Foreign Film nomination. Brazil's film called The Second Mother, a film that found an audience and awards at this year's Sundance Film Festival. We talked about that film and Brazilian cinema with Kathy Corley, who teaches film production and film studies at Webster University. We spoke to her on location at the university's campus in the St. Louis area. Uh, it premiered last year at Sundance, at the Sundance Film Festival, and it stars uh, the wonderful Brazilian actress, Regina Casse. And essentially, it's the story of a domestic worker slash nanny who works for her employer, which is an upper middle class family living in Sao Paulo. And uh, an interesting thing about it in terms of key themes in the movie, the Portuguese title is Que Horas Ela Volta. And that's a line that one of the children speaks, a line of dialogue in the movie, where he wants to know, when is my mother coming back? When is she coming back? In the first few minutes of the movie, Ana Mulaerch, uh, really establishes a key theme of the film, and that is it's the plight of domestic workers who are off raising other people's children while their own children are being raised by other people. And so uh, the movie explores these themes, and things change in the plot when the daughter of Val, who is the um, maid played by uh, Regina Casse, her daughter Jessica comes. She's now a teenager. She wants to come live with her mother now, and she wants to apply for university to study architecture. And once Jessica enters the picture, the whole dynamics change in the family unit and within the whole relationship of uh, Val and her relationship to the family. So it's really a film about motherhood in modern Brazil. Yes, it's, it's, it's about that, and it's about a lot of different themes. I think uh, the movie explores in a very nice way relationships. It's about parent-child relationships. Uh, it's about employer-employee relationships. And as a result, it's also a lot about boundaries, personal boundaries, professional boundaries, and people who cross those boundaries and want to transgress them which uh, different characters do in different ways in this movie. So, so it does cover a lot of very uh, key themes that are part of contemporary life, not only in Brazil, but all over the world. Why did you think that this was a particularly award-winning film, that it, that it reached a certain level that would, uh, that would impact audiences, not just in Brazil? Well, I think one of my favorite things about Brazilian cinema, especially the more contemporary work coming out, is they're very enlightening, but they're also, I don't want to use the word entertaining because it sounds like it trivializes it, but it's very emotionally engaging. And the characters resonate with you long after you finish watching the movie. And I think a key strength of this movie is the performances. Uh, both Hegina Casse and Camilla Mardilla, who plays her daughter Jessica, won a special award at Sundance. All the performances are good, and I think the sense of humanity and authenticity. Uh, Casse's performance is so believable, so realistic, but it doesn't resort to cliches. Uh, she's just a fabulous actress, and she really uh, gives a lot to that role and has a great director working with her. 
you mentioned that this won an award at Sundance and it, it, it did well this past summer. Um, but why do you think a film like this, a Brazilian film, falls short of being worthy for the Academy Awards to, to, to take a look at? They've already decided this is not a film. That is, that is going to come to that particular level? Uh, that's always hard to predict in terms of how the Academy members are going to vote and select uh, nominations. A really good example that I can bring up is Sadaji de Deus, or City of God, didn't get a Best Foreign Film Award, and yet the following year, because of how the rules are written, it was nominated in a number of different categories. So um, it just, plays out that way, unfortunately, with not only uh, this film, but many other uh, very worthy foreign films. And uh, I think this was, I, personally, I think this was very deserving of a nomination, but it just didn't happen this year. City of God is probably the film that if people are going to say, what's a Brazilian film that you've seen that many people in the United States have seen, right. and one of the great uh, films of the past generation from Brazil. Um, but we don't see many that reach that height um, all the time. Is, is there particular reason? Is there something going on with the Brazilian film industry that they can't produce those at the same level like this? Well, I think there's a lot of work it coming out of Brazil, but it's finding a distributor for the work. And I think as time goes on, uh, any foreign film in the United States in particular, it's difficult to distribute them because your return on investment may not always be as much as you'd like it to be. What I think is a real game changer is the fact that Netflix, Google, iTunes, and a lot of streaming services are making these Brazilian films available in a way that they were never able to be available for to a wide audience. So for example, Fandor, one of my favorite websites where I stream a lot of international films, they partnered with Cinema Slate and a couple of the films that I'd like to talk about today are actually running right now that you can stream them. Uh, really good quality um, copies with great English subtitles. So um, that, I think, is the game changer here. What else about The Second Mother you think is, is worthwhile for us to examine? Um, I think it's really interesting to look at themes of race and class. Uh, these are themes that come up over and over again in Brazilian cinema. Also, the idea of income inequality. I mean, how relevant is that today, especially with the United States and, and many of the things going on all throughout the country? All of these three themes, I think, are very important. So the way they explore them, uh, it gives us a way to look at our own cultures, whether we're living in the United States or other countries, who, uh, people who might be listening to the show, to think about how race class and income inequality plays out in their own culture. And I think it's it's just really great food for thought when you're watching this movie. As someone who's an expert on Brazil, do you think that it accurately portrays those inequalities and, and portrays the issue of race in Brazil? In this particular film, uh, yes. And even the other ones that I'd like to talk about as well, I think um, it's I think it's very important for Brazilian film and also for people watching around the world Brazilian film to see the many multifaceted aspects of their society, uh, that not every film is about a favela. And so what you're going to see in some of these films are upper middle class families, but you'll also see people who intersect with them and how they intersect with people who are not in their own class or their own race. And race, of course, is different than it is in the United States. It's much more, I think, complex in terms of the history. Um, it's, um, that's something that I, when I've taught Brazilian cinema in uh, classes in the United States, people, my students find that very interesting, how similar and, and yet different it, it is. 
How would you describe that difference? Well, I think, uh, for example, when my students see City of God and they see the characters, they see a multiracial group of characters, whereas in the United States, it's segmented in terms of Caucasian or white or black and African American. So they notice that right away and they talk about it in class where they see that and then they want to know more about the history of Brazil and how that happened and, uh, and compare it with their own country and their own background. Thanks so much. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, Kathy Corley of Webster University. Thanks for joining us. Muito obrigado, Rick. We'll be hearing more from that interview about Brazilian films later this winter. And now, a correction. During our last program, we misidentified the president of Brazil's Chamber of Deputies. He is properly called Eduardo Cunha. We used a different first name. We regret the error. If you spot any errors or would like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Hente Flow. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives on video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin dash Pulse. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin dash Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Natalie Ottinger and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions.